Hello fam, today I am back with the case of the notorious monster grave robber Ed Gein. We're going to be doing a deep dive into his early life and life of crime and just general bizarreness. The case of nature versus nurture is strong with this one and I want you to have that theme in mind during this episode. Also, I was going to do this entire case of Ed Gein in just one part but I decided to do two parts. There's just so much information and I really just felt like we needed it to be spread out in two episodes. Like seriously guys, this is one of the heaviest cases that I've ever done um, and I know I just did a two-parter um, and if you haven't listened to it yet, go listen to it. I'm talking about the Arnie Cheyenne Johnson case. Uh, that's the devil in Manhattan case. So if you haven't listened to that two-parter that I did, go ahead and listen to that. And even though I just did a two-parter, you guys, Ed Gein is so huge, it needs to be in two parts. Also, this is a local to me case. This is a Wisconsin case. And so I really, I mean, I want to do every case justice, but it's something about those local cases that you really just want to get right. And that is my goal for today is to just share all this information with you guys, like hopefully not freak you out too badly, but it's going to be pretty insane. And then I'll be back with part two and part two will be even worse than part one. So you guys, this is your disclaimer. Before we begin this episode, I just want to open with a brief disclaimer. During the course of this episode, there will be mention of content that will be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. All right, now that you've been properly warned, you've got your disclaimer, giving you the heads up. Those of you who have stuck with me so far, you guys, let's dive into this case of Ed Gein. Shelby a while ago. I just wanted to tell you about a greeting card company I started called the Stillwater Company. I offer prints of the sweetest farm animals in Wisconsin's countryside, all in packs of four by six greeting cards. All of the proceeds from any of the sales go towards a local shelter that helps at-risk youth in our neighborhood. And you can check it out at www.welcometostillwater.com if you're interested. Thank you. I hope you had a good week and you are back and ready for this case. I have a really bad cold. I feel like every time I get on here, I'm like, I have a really bad cold, but I get colds like crazy and I get allergies too. So like who knows if it's allergies or a cold, but I'm going to be doing my best to make it through this episode and without too many stutters or, you know, sniffles or coughs. I'm going to try to edit that out as much as I can for you, but I'm really going to, I'm really going to try here. Okay. So I said Ed Gein is a local to me case. He is um, from Wisconsin. But like my question to you guys are why are all the weirdos in the Midwest? Like seriously, like I haven't covered Jeffrey Dahmer yet. Um, I mean, I plan on it someday, but he was in Milwaukee. This guy, Ed Gein, right here in Wisconsin. John Wayne Gacy, H.H. H. Holmes are in Illinois. 
the Cleveland Strangler. That's just one of the, that's just a couple of the many, many killers in the Midwest. And I mean, I know there's a lot in California, but focusing specifically on the Midwest, why do you think that is? Why do you think they just seem to originate here? So I found a chat room on the internet that was discussing this because I just Googled like, why are all the serial killers in the Midwest? Just because I was wondering if like anyone else is wondering this. And so this chat room was discussing this idea and one person said maybe it's just out of sheer boredom. And I can kind of see that, but at the same time, like I live in the Midwest and there's tons to do here. So like, obviously their moms never sent them outside to play by themselves when they were little. Um, but one thing I think is, is that the Midwestern folks, like especially during this time period of the 60s to the 90s, they're very, very trusting, right? That's just was that's just their people's personalities here. And I can see that being like an open field for like a psychopath or a murderer to pick from because these Midwestern people were trusting and unassuming and everyone hung out with everyone, you know, and kids were just sent out to play, um, stuff like that. I, that's just my thought. Like, if you have different thoughts on why it seems like all these weirdos come from the Midwest, like, let me know. I want to know what you think. Those were just what I was thinking, and I just wanted to share what I found in that chat room. Uh, feel free to comment, like I said, on why you think there are so many serial killers here, but that's not the basis of what we're going to be talking about today. That was just on my mind, and I just wanted to share it. Let's shout out some sources. I want to shout out a book. You guys know I love buying a good book for my research. This book is called Deviant, The Shocking True Story of This Original Psycho, and it was written by Harold Schechter, and it was very, very helpful to my research, and it was a super fun read. It was kind of freaky. Like, it was really freaky. Check it out. Fantastic book. Another book I used for this, and I will use again, I only use like a couple chapters, is Villains, Scoundrels, and Rogues, The Incredible True Tales of Mischief and Mayhem. And that's by Paul Martin. Again, great book. Love those sources. Go ahead and read them. So this case is going to be a gnarly one. And let me just say for the, like, the third or fourth time already, it's going to be tough. But I want to open this episode with a limerick. This limerick is from that book, Deviant, which I already shouted out. Go read it. I just feel like this limerick is going to set the tone for the episode. And so here it is. Let me read it to you guys. There once was a man named Ed who wouldn't take a woman to bed. When he wanted to diddle, he cut out the middle and hung the rest in the shed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know what else to say. Um, but I feel like that limerick opened up Ed Gein's story to us oh so well. Oh, 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 and oh so well. And you'll find out why in a little bit. We're going to start out part one like we normally do. And first, we're going to take a look at the parents. Where did Ed Gein come from? Who were the parents? Let's look at them. Ed's parents were George and Augusta. George Gein was born in 1876 and while George was still grow was still growing up, he lived in Coon Valley, Wisconsin. And if you're not familiar with where that is, it's about an out an hour outside of Lacrosse. When George was three, his mom, dad, and older sister were taking a ride on a wagon. They were headed towards town just to run some errands and grab a few things 
but they sadly never returned home. There was a flash flood by the Mississippi River, and the wagon was lost along with all of its passengers. And George, at this time, like I said, was only three, so he went to live with his grandparents, who were Scottish immigrants and farmers, who didn't live that far away. They were very, very stern disciplinarian folks. George didn't get a lot of love that a three-year-old boy needs, especially a three-year-old boy who had this kind of trauma in their early life with losing his family. When George grew up, he stopped working at his grandparents' farm and instead wanted to work um, out of town, and he wanted to work as a blacksmith learning the trade and working hard wherever he could, he finally decided to leave his grandparents' home for good when he was in his 20s. George went to the bigger city of La Crosse and kept looking for work, but it was getting harder to hold down a job due to his becoming more of an alcoholic. He would loathe about what a horrible life he had, sit in self-pity, and drink himself into a stupor. He felt like he was a failure, and instead of doing really anything to prove otherwise, he just would wallow in self-pity and drink himself to unconsciousness. George met 19-year-old Augusta when he was 24, and he fell in love. Although, no one is sure what the two of them saw in each other, and, and not, I'm, to put it as nice as possible, I'm not that sure either. Like, I, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I, I, everyone could love anyone, like, that's fine, but these two, they I don't know. You'll see what I you'll see what I mean later. George was a quiet, reserved person, and Augusta was like the polar opposite of that. She was controlling, loud, domineering, a self-righteous human who commanded everyone around her to listen to her and her values or else. But George and Augusta were attracted to each other, and they decided that, yeah, you're the one. They got married December 4th, 1899. And so began a very, very hard marriage. Augusta, like I said, was the domineering, controlling one, but she'd also belittle her husband in public. She'd openly scorn him. She'd call him worthless and good for nothing. And instead of fighting back and standing up for himself or really doing anything to change his circumstances and prove to his wife that, yeah, he is worth something and, you know, he isn't a good for nothing. Instead, when Augusta was raging at him, George would, like, say nothing, keep to himself, and just keep drinking. And, of course, that would infuriate Augusta even more. Augusta hated the idea, hated the idea of being with George sexually. She grew to resent him so fast, but she was believed to, she was raised to believe that sex was only for procreation and not supposed to be pleasurable in any way. And so she desperately longed for a child. The book described it as, like, she was gritting her teeth at doing what needed to be done. <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't be laughing, but I, but I am. And so <clears throat> she, just, she just thought a baby would solve this. And so she, they just started trying to have a baby. And even though George was not able to hang on to jobs and the family was living very meagerly just to survive, Augusta had the thought, like I said, a child would change everything, their marriage would be fixed, as long as she fulfilled that need that she wanted a child. When Augusta and George would fight, and after George came home from a drinking binge, Augusta and George would go toe-to-toe -to -toe in a yelling match, and at one point, George would lose it, and he would, like, slap Augusta repeatedly across the face, which is horrible and disgusting. When George would leave, Augusta would then pray on the kitchen table for her husband's death. Yeah, it's very toxic. It's a very toxic and stressful relationship. 
and probably not something that they should have brought a child into, but they did. George and Augusta had a son named Henry on January 17, 1902. During this time, George and Augusta took charge of an old meat and grocery shop at 914 Caledonia Street in La Crosse, Wisconsin. However, George couldn't handle being the boss. He started neglecting the business and not doing what he was supposed to do. The business started, like, going into shambles. And so Augusta took control again. She, like, pulled up her sleeves, named herself the proprietor, proprietor, and her husband George as merely the clerk of the business, which was big for a woman at this time to have this position of authority over the man. So she was not timid of that in the slightest, which in this part, I'm like, good for you, Augusta. Like, way to step in there way to pick up the business, way to, way to do it. And like the business got more successful, like with Augusta at the head, the business grew and they ended up buying more grocery stores as well. So like this part, I'm like, yeah, Augusta, you do it. But like the rest of the time, I'm like, oh, Augusta, you kind of suck. <laughs> but like with this, she was a fantastic businesswoman. Like her personality was perfect for like the cutthroat business part of the world. Little Henry grew up in a home, sadly, that was empty of love, and he never had his mother's love. Augusta thought that she didn't love him because Henry was a boy, so she prayed instead for a daughter. However, on August 27, 1906, when their second child, Edward Theodore Gein, was born, Augusta decided she raised this boy differently and better than all the other evil, vile men around her. Ed was going to grow up to be special. Augusta was not only cruel to her husband, she was also very, very cruel and harsh with her children. At one point, she said to seven-year-old Ed, when he'd lost some coins she'd given him to go buy bread, quote, you dreadful child, only a mother could love you, end quote. Ed only wanted one thing in life. He just wanted his mother's approval, but he would never get that. She'd constantly berate him, even as a little, little child, and she'd belittle him to the point of tears. Just, she was just horrible to her children. Like, Henry wasn't getting any love from her, and then Augusta was pouring all of her energy into Ed, and Ed was just trying to reciprocate that with doing whatever she wanted, but she, it's like she wasn't capable of loving both of the boys. Honestly, this case of Ed Gein is just about as much of Augusta's case as it is Ed's case, honestly. Like, there's there's so much to unpack about Augusta Gein. She wants to get them out of the city, right? She thinks La Crosse is just this horrible, disgusting city. This She thinks it's like this mega city with all of these women that are hookers or prostitutes and she's like all women are disgusting like look at all of these women throwing themselves at men like oh it's like Sodom and Gomorrah over here like she she hates the city the city's disgusting and evil and she's constantly brainwashing her children with a thought that like all women are evil all women are out to get you like you better watch yourself because that woman's gonna trip you up and then you're gonna be lost forever type of an attitude and so she had to get her family out of there. In 1914, she decided to move the family out to the country, leave this horrible city <laughs> behind. And if you don't know me, uh, trust me, I'm being facetious. I'm not, be I'm not um, 
being serious at all. But this was her view. This is, was how she thought. At this time, Henry was 13 and Ed was 8. And she moved the family to a farm in Camp Douglas, which is about 40 miles outside of the city of La Crosse. But they weren't here for very long, and I couldn't find why they moved from this location. Maybe it just wasn't what they wanted. I'm not sure. But after the Camp Douglas farm, then the entire family moved to Plainfield, Wisconsin, and that's where they put their roots down there. They settled at a farm that was in the middle of nowhere with no neighbors as far as the eye could see, but Augusta was happy with that. She was so thankful to get her family out of that evil city filled with the harlots and evil men, as she'd say. So the farm sat at about 195 acres and it had a very modest homestead, a barn, a chicken coop, and a shack that would be used to store equipment. The farm had two bedrooms on the first floor, five on the second floor, and had a beautiful summer kitchen attached to the home. Which, if you're not familiar with what, like, a summer kitchen is, it's a very Midwestern thing. When it was hot in the summer, you could do your hot cooking outside, so you could keep the larger interior of your house cool, like, while you're doing the cooking and stuff. And so that's what a summer kitchen was used for, and people still use it now for that. But Augusta took great pride in her new home that she purchased, and the farm was deeded to her in her own name, which is another super cool thing for a woman back then. Augusta always kept her home in pristine condition. There was never a tidier home than Augusta Gaines' home. Everything was always in its place. She took a very she took a lot of pride in keeping her home um, beautiful. Ed started going to school in Plainfield, and he was a very average student. His teachers and the kids around him thought he was a little weird. He'd randomly burst out laughing at times, which, I mean, to me, that's not that weird, but the book mentioned it, so, like, I thought I'd mention it. I kind of, like, randomly laugh and talk to myself because I have, like, these interesting conversations with myself all the time, but, like, it was weird to those around him that he did that, so maybe I'm weird, too. I don't know. While he was at school, he had a hard time fitting in, and he didn't really relate to any of his classmates. He was very shy and bashful, and he would often be taken advantage of by different school bullies, which is horrible. Kids can be horrible. Ed had a growth on his left eyelid, and it caused him to have, like, a lazy eye, and he had a small lesion on his tongue, which caused him to talk differently. And, of course, you know, kids can be cruel, and he was mocked for it a lot of the times. The very few friends he tried to make would be just driven away by his mother, 100%. Like, he'd come home to being like, hey, mom, I made a friend with, like, so-and-so. And she'd be like, wait, what? Really? Do you know what family he's from? Wait, wait, wait. He, you, you can't be friends with him. Like, no, he's evil. Like, you're my perfect Ed. Like, you, Eddie, you cannot be friends with him. Like, 100% spaz out on him, making him just not capable of having any friends. She would actually, like, punish the boys for, for making friends. And if Ed came home crying from school, like, after a hard day of being made fun of or teased, because he had those days a lot, his father would beat him. He's not getting what he needs at home. Classmates thought Ed, like I said, was very weird. Girls in his class would catch him staring at them, and they'd feel odd. He had loved talking about sex or hunting accidents and death and gore, like all the bloody stuff. He liked the attention the kids gave him when he'd tell stories like that. The school kids just thought he was odd, just not, you know, not like the other boys. But when he was teased and ridiculed by the classmates, to Ed, that kind of only confirmed this idea that Augusta planted in her children. 
The world was a cruel place. You don't need anyone on the outside, only her and the farm. Like, they're in this little bubble, and she's like, you need to stay in this bubble. The world is a cruel place. Which, <laughs> that reminds me of the movie Tangled. You can tell I'm, like, a mom, because that reminded me of a kid's Disney movie. But remember when the mother's like, sings the Mother Knows Best song? Yeah, just imagine Augusta Gein singing that song, and I feel like you would nail her personality perfectly. She's literally Mother Gothel. <laughs> Despite, like, the lack of love he was getting from his mom, Ed still looked up to her 100% in his mind. His mom could do no wrong. She was perfect. Like, she had the world in her hands. She single-handedly took a, like care of the family. She saw, like, how his dad wasn't really being a good dad he was very absent and he saw his dad act like that and then he like on the other side he saw his mom taking care of everybody taking care of the farm taking care of the business taking care of the family and he was just kind of like wow you're you're amazing mom like I love you so much which yeah she was taking care of a lot but he 100% idolized her way way too much to the point that it was getting really weird um there was one point when Augusta was in the barn and Ed started walking up to the barn. The barn doors were closed. He opened the barn doors just a little bit and peeked inside and like what he saw like completely horrified him. He saw a pig hanging from the rafters of that barn by its ankles. The pig is dead, completely gutted, and Augusta is just covered in blood butchering this pig. And he saw that, and while most of it would be, like, you know, a little disturbing for a child to walk in on that, and maybe, like, a little scary if you're a kid, maybe you're not expecting that. I'm sure that's just scary for anyone, honestly, walking in. But he kind of just looked at her, like, with awe, and I imagine, like, there was a little bit of drool in his mouth a little bit, and he's just like, oh, mom, you're so cool, mom, you're so cool. And honestly, that kind of attitude does not leave throughout the entire rest of his life. Like, he's always in awe of Augusta. He is just 100% a mama's boy and and despite all those problems that he had at school like I don't want you to think Ed was dumb he was a very smart kid and he did very well during the short time that he attended school because he did not attend school for that long he graduated school in eighth grade at 16 years old and that was the end of his formal education he didn't go back and finish school but he instead stayed at the farm when he wasn't working on the farm he loved reading and dreaming about life outside of his lonely life. Augusta was nonstop harping on her boys. You know, that that didn't change. And now he's home from school, so he kind of is hearing it 24-7. And at one time, she caught Ed masturbating in the bathtub. She grabbed Ed by his genitals. She pulled them and screamed that they were, quote, curse of man, end quote. This is what Ed is staying home with okay, 24-7. That's gonna mess anyone up. She was infuriated, and she made both of her sons promise to remain virgins. Don't go by those nasty women, boys. Stay away from those boys, or stay with boys and girls. Stay away from those people. No, she wanted them to remain her kids forever, 100% devoted to her, despite Henry and Ed working on the farm. George never really um, participated, let's say, in the farm work. Augusta was taking on all of the chores that George didn't do, and the farm was proving hard to manage, and, and it did start falling apart a little bit. It wasn't paying off. 
It was harder to manage with that low income that they were coming, but Augusta didn't believe in divorce. She couldn't leave the farm out of pride. You know, this is her baby. She's going to make it work. George was a lazy, good-for-nothing alcoholic who would drink up whatever money the family had. He wouldn't really contribute to the farm chores at all, and then he would beat his wife and his children whenever he was in this drunken stupor. But nonetheless, the family persisted. They just buckled down. They kept trying to make it work. They were pinching their pennies. They were going to do this thing. Augusta would warn her sons daily, multiple times a day, about the dangers of women. They were evil harlots. They were going to entrap them. She would make her boys promise that they wouldn't fall for the evil woman's trap. And she would make them swear from a very young age that they'd have nothing to do with these women particularly the women of Plainfield, Wisconsin. Like, she was that neighboring town. She was like, all of the evil women are just there. Just don't go to this town. It's, like, so evil, which (laughs) it's such a little town. I don't know. I don't know. A quote by Silvano Arietti from the Interpretation of Schizophrenia says, quote, Although it is the mother who contributes mostly in producing the conditions which we are going to describe, We usually find it in the history with schizophrenics that both the parents have failed the child, often for different reasons. Frequently, the combination is as follows. A domineering, nagging, hostile mother who gives the child no chance to assert himself is married to a dependent, weak man, too weak to help the child. A father who dares not protect the child because he is not able to oppose her strong personality is just as crippling to the child as the mother is end quote. So with everything going on in Ed's life, the nagging mother, the absent father, the loneliness, and just complete lack of social interaction, as well as his mother preaching at them constantly about everything, it's no wonder that Ed's getting like this really messed up view of the world around him and just like this really skewed view of the world. George died from a heart attack on April 1st, 1940, and he died from um, pneumonic fluid on his lungs at the age of 66. Augusta ruled him, wow, excuse me, Augusta ridiculed him even after his death by calling him weak, and she said he was probably going to hell. And since the farm wasn't as stable as she would have liked it to be, Ed and Henry had to get jobs off the farm. Which was much to her dismay because, remember, she hates them leaving the farm. But they they just had to get jobs off the farm like they needed to, to make it work. Henry started doing odd jobs around town. And Ed, now a young adult, started getting babysitting jobs. The people of Plainfield trusted him enough to watch their children. Which, like, I mean, he was a little odd like they'd say, but they didn't really have a reason not to trust him yet. But with what we know now of Ed's past... Can you just imagine saying that you were babysat by Ed Gein when you were a child? Yikes! Like, I can't imagine that at all. That's insane. And for the families who were going to find out later, like, who Ed Gein turned out to be, and they're like, yikes, he was just over two weeks ago watching the kids. That stinks. Like, can you believe that? That was just really weird to me. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm a mom and, like, thinking of someone watching my children, like, I couldn't imagine someone like this. So maybe that's why it's, like, standing off and really weird to me. But, ugh, it just left, like, a really gross feeling in my mouth, honestly. Out of the two boys, like we said, Ed was closer to his mother than Henry was. Ed was the mama's boy. Henry 
he was growing up both emotionally and physically, and now he's ready to get out. He's ready for life off the farm. Henry would question his mother's erratic teachings and preachings, and he just wasn't standing anymore for her bullying of them. Ed could stay if he wanted, but Henry was ready to move on with his life, and he was ready to start living. Henry started doing more work off the farm than on, and he started doing some road building. He was even hired by a different farm to work as a foreman, and he was really good at it. One day, Henry pointed out that Ed and Augusta's relationship was just too close, and even though Henry still respected his mother, him calling it out like that, Ed took it to heart, and he just couldn't understand how anyone could think that Augusta was anything less than an angel, and this caused a huge rift between Ed and Henry, a huge rift. Another rift was drawn between them when Henry started dating a woman who his mother deemed unworthy. Uh, This woman that Henry was dating was a divorced woman with two children, and this was just not okay with Augusta. Henry's being with this woman caused countless fights to break out in the household. Countless fights. Wow, I can't talk. Now we're at 1944. It's spring. Henry and Ed got to work clearing some marshland. They put it in large piles to be burned away. That's just what you do on a farm. You know, they're doing normal springtime stuff. While they were getting ready to set the fire, according to Ed, the fire got out of control. And as they were fighting it, Ed lost sight of his brother, Henry, and Henry would soon die in that area. He died at the age of 43. But at the time of this fire, you know, they let it, it gets out of control. They can't find Henry. So Ed goes to get help. And that's when the police and a search party arrives. But Ed goes and, you know, gets them to find him. But when the police and them get here, Ed allegedly leaves them right to Henry's body in that field right close to where they were working. So it's like, like, why did you need help finding the body yet? He knew where Henry was. It was just a little weird. When Henry's body was found, it wasn't right where the fires were, but rather it was more kind of out of the way. And there were no burn marks on the body. So since he wasn't burned, you're thinking, okay, maybe he died from smoke inhalation, right? Like that's totally possible, but he wasn't really in the way of the fire. So I feel like the smoke he would have inhaled would have just been very minimal, if any. Henry's head also had significant bruising on it. And at the time, there was really no reason to suspect that Ed could have caused any harm to his brother. So Henry's death was labeled as an accident. No investigation was performed. No autopsy was ever done. The county coroner ruled that, quote, Henry had been asphyxiated by smoke from the fire, end quote. And knowing what we know now about Ed Gein, it is highly probable that Henry was Ed's first victim. Highly. Like, maybe Ed killed him out of rage, or maybe they got into a fight about their mom, and Henry tried to convince Ed to leave her and leave the farm, and maybe Ed just couldn't take it, Or maybe Ed killed Henry because he thought that he was hurting their mother. Or maybe Ed just wanted Henry out of the way. He could have his mother all to himself. Maybe he thought that Henry was causing his mother grief and he didn't want that. Like, honestly, there's a ton of scenarios. They all sound believable, okay? Like, you all, you're listening to these. You're like, yeah, I could see that. Well, yeah, I could see that too. But the police didn't think so. They didn't think there was really anything suspicious about this. And so, 
I mean, honestly, I don't think we'll ever really know. I think we can just look on and assume that maybe this is what happened, but, but we, we won't really ever know. Once Henry was gone and Henry was buried, I'm sure Ed was like, oh, finally, just time with me and my mom. Uh, we know he didn't really show a lot of emotion after Henry's death, but Augusta took it extremely hard. She was heartbroken. Shortly during this time after Henry's death, Augusta caught her son Ed reading some disturbing material. Not like porn, you know, not like that. She caught him reading books on grave robbing, um, human anatomy, and head shrinking. And if you don't know what head shrinking means, it's an old tribal ritual that is thought to have originated from Peru or Ecuador, and it's the process of severing a head, preserving it for a religious or a trophy purpose. So naturally, Augusta, you know, was a little concerned about this, but she beat Ed for reading this information. She just beat him for it. She said, you know, this is gross. This is evil. How dare you bring this into this house? But Augusta could not get over Henry's death. You know, it is always, there's no words when you lose a child. And I know she didn't love Henry as, a, as a, you know, when he was here, but he she felt so much emotion when Henry was gone. She suffered a stroke shortly after Henry's death, and that left her bedridden. Bedridden. So now Ed had to take care of the farm. He had to do odd jobs off at the farm, uh, whatever he could do, whatever he had time for to make a little extra income. And he also had to take care of his mother, who couldn't walk. He would even reportedly share her bed at times just to be near her. But Augusta would never truly recover from this. And December 29th, 1945, Augusta had a second stroke and died from it at the age of 67 of a cerebral brain hemorrhage. Ed was absolutely beside himself. He had worshipped his mother for as long as he could remember, and now he, she was gone? Like, what was he going to do? Augusta was buried in the Plainfield Cemetery, and this is where the book um, Villains, Scoundrels, and Rogues by Paul Martin states that this is where we see one of the first signs of Ed's mental deterioration. Almost immediately after his mother's death, Ed boarded up her room, just just keeping it frozen in time, which, you know, is not bad by itself, right? He's in mourning. It's healthy for people to work through it, and maybe he needed just some time to work through it. But when a loved one dies, like, it's kind of important for the family to kind of clean out the room. That's a time to rem remember reminisce about the past and the good times. It is just a way to work through it. It's helpful for the moving on process, but he never allowed himself this time. Instead, the mother's room is boarded up, leaving it exactly how she would have left it, exactly how she would have wanted it. In his mind, you know, it wasn't his room. Even though he was the master of the house right now, it's his mother's room. He had to keep it as she had, almost making it seem like, too, she wasn't really gone. Like, he could not except that she wasn't going to be there anymore. He also boarded off the parlor, keeping that exactly how Augusta had left it as well. A quote by the Stevens Point Daily Journal said, quote, Edward Gein has two faces. One he showed to the neighbors. The others he showed only to the dead, end quote. So Ed has two rooms in this home boarded up. Where was he living? Ed was living in the kitchen and the small bedroom right next to the kitchen. Those were the only rooms in the house that he would go in and, and actually live in. Like, those were the only rooms 
that he used. His mother, you know, had kept the house extremely clean. Everything was perfect in its place. But when she died, apart from the rooms he boarded up, the parlor and her bedroom, the house was absolutely destroyed. Ed didn't take care of anything. Dirt, dust, grease built up everywhere. Cobwebs were everywhere. There were stacks of garbage piled everywhere in the house. Rodent droppings, rotten food, food scraps everywhere. Mice, rats. It was just a nasty environment. I don't know if you've seen this show, Hoarders, but that's kind of what I'm picturing right now, and it's not a pretty picture. The only thing that Ed seemed to take care of were his firearms. He had a two 22 caliber rifles, a 22 pistol, and a 765 millimeter and a 12 gauge shotgun. He would sleep on a grease-filled, moldy, mildewy bed, which is gross, but his guns would be clean, pristine, and leaning up against the side of the house. To the rest of the town of Plainfield, a small town, only about 600 people in all, Ed's life didn't really seem to change much after Augustus' death. He would help his neighbors whenever they would call him to fix something or help cut up some firewood. He'd sit with their kids while the parents would run errands. Sometimes he would help them out by working with the threshing crew at the local mill. The wives, the farm wives in the town would have large meals prepared for them like after working with the threshing crew. And so the men would sit and eat after they finished. The wives never said anything out loud to their husbands at the time, but they always felt weird around Ed. After the men would finish eating, they'd go outside for a drink or a smoke, but not Ed. Ed would stay at the kitchen table just watching and staring at the women cleaning up, not saying anything, just kind of watching them, so that's kind of weird. The townspeople would see him in passing as he'd go to the store or something like that. They kind of wouldn't really take much notice of him. His appearance, however, was one of the first things they did notice that began to deteriorate after his mother's death. Ed was never a clean fellow to begin with, but after his mother died, like, he started getting more and more unkempt. He also began to noticeably stink, and he didn't ever wash himself. He had very poor hygiene. Not only did Ed start to suffer himself, but the farm started to suffer as well. Augusta wasn't there taking care of it, and it showed. Ed didn't even bother working the farm after his mother died. The animals were sold to help pay for the funeral, and the equipment the family had just sat there unused and rusting. Ed kept himself busy by randomly helping the townspeople as well as reading. He loved true crime stories, especially the pictures. He loved looking at the dead victims, especially the women, and that further deepened his fascination with women, especially women that were already dead. He also was fascinated with the Nazis, especially medical experiments that the Nazis would conduct on their prisoners. He read about Ilko, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right. It's I-L-S-E-K-O-C-H. This woman was an SS official in Nazi Germany. She was married to a commandant of a prison camp. She was evil and horrible and absolutely disgusting to the prisoners. She was one of the ones who, like, uh, picked which woman would die and which woman would, like, get experimented on and which human would get experimented on. She was horrible. She was known for collecting human heads, and she made furniture and shades and blinds out of her victim's skin. And Ed Gein liked this a lot. He loved reading about this woman. He took quite a fascination with her, and we'll find out why later. One other thing to note, Ed's father 
while he didn't do much, you know, on the farm and he was very lazy and unreliable, he did work for himself as a tanner. So that's where we see this obsession start first. Ed's father was a tanner. That was a way for Ed to, like, learn kind of about human skin and stuff like, or not human skin, learn about skin and how it can be removed and stuff like that. So Ed really did have that interest when his father was around. That's when that interest sparked. Ed also loved reading books regarding exhuming human bodies, both legally and when grave robbing. He was very interested in that. He was very interested in human anatomy, how it works, how the body is put together, stuff like that, which that's normal. He read about sexual mutilation, cannibalism, which is not normal. And he loved, loved reading the local obituaries. Now, you're probably like, that, that's random, like, but that sounds better than like everything else that you said he likes reading. Well, yeah, it is. But he wasn't really reading about the obituaries for any good reasons. He wasn't really reading to see, you know, to check up on the neighborhood or anything. He was just looking to see who had been recently buried because he was looking for someone special, some people special. Ed was looking for a specific type of person that had been recently buried. His quote-unquote type was a middle-aged woman to a slightly older woman that age range and if they resembled his mother then that that was just the best case scenario all around but if a woman that he knew fit that description died he'd read about it and the same day the woman's body was put in the ground ed would be there that night digging in the cemetery he would dig and dig and dig until he hit the coffin and then he would retrieve the body sometimes he would take the entire body other times he would just cut up the parts that he wanted and then he would bring them back to his nasty home. There he would cut up the bodies, he would mutilate the parts to what his fantasy-filled dark mind could think of. There the still dead bodies were his and he could take control of them. When investigators would search through the home, they found that Ed Gein's creation they weren't just, you know, DIY projects. They were made from human body parts. Yeah. That is what we are going to look into at part two. Dun, dun, dun. Leaving you hanging just a little bit. Oh, I feel so nasty making you guys wait. But honestly, guys, like, here, here's the thing. Like, it's so much is found at Ed Gein's home during the searching and stuff that I really wanted it to be, you know, this beginning part of Ed where we don't see, except for, you know, possibly Henry's death, question mark, murder, question mark. We don't really see anything bad about Ed yet. Like, you know, we're kind of just seeing him, like, you know, just being a little weird, like living his life um, with what, everything that we just talked about. But the part two is going to be what we find. What the people of Plainfield don't know is Ed is insane. He is very messed up. And he hit it well, though. He hit it very, very, very well. And so I'm really excited to do part two with you guys. Now, I know I'm a bi-weekly podcast, but I'm not going to make you wait two weeks for part two. I will do my best to get part two out there 
within this upcoming week. So you won't have to wait the full two weeks. I'll get it out as soon as I can. So it'll be there so you can catch both parts closer to each other. Um, that's that's the plan. I'll do it as best as I can. Like you never know what's going to happen with the week. But that is what I'm shooting for getting part two done within the next couple days. Like there's so much though. I need to know like when to stop and when to keep adding information because I'm just finding so much about this guy and I want to give as much details to you guys as I can so I can do this case, you know, justice basically. Okay, you guys, that is the end of part one. I will be back with part two in a little bit, so make sure you catch that. Meantime, I want to know your thoughts about, like, the Midwest producing serial killers. Like, let me know what you think about that. Like, if you think it's just a coincidence or maybe any of the variables in the beginning had anything to do with it, I want to thank you to, um all the sponsors, but to specifically Stillwater. Guys, 100%, 100% of her proceeds go to at-risk youth in the neighborhood. Like, why wouldn't you want to support this amazing company? Olivia is really out there changing lives. Like, she's awesome, man. Support Stillwater. Um, you heard her ad in the beginning here. I'll make sure to link her website. Check her out a hundred percent of the proceeds guys a hundred percent at risk youth super super cool great cause go ahead and check it out all right thank you guys for listening as always you can find us on social media we're on instagram facebook or twitter at addicted underscore crime don't forget to leave us a good review on itunes i really appreciate it it keeps me relevant and the stuff all around me so i really appreciate it share these episodes share them with your friends um, I'm just having fun with it, guys. Like, I'm not really making a lot. I don't got a ton of Patreons. Like, I'm just doing the thing, um, one step at a time. But I love it. Like, I love this. It's so much fun telling you guys stories, no matter how horrible they are. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. As always, stay safe, and I'll see you for part two. Bye-bye. <laughs>